I think the management has become more fine-tuned and we see less patients dying. That doesn't mean we don't see patients dying. It's just we see less numbers dying. So I think that the airway management, the oxygenation management, um, the use of steroids, um, probably those two things are a big thing. And then, um, you know, I think just the other measures that have been implemented in society, wearing masks maybe reduces the burden of how much people are exposed to. All that makes a difference too. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, brought to you by two board-certified pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and Dr. Sammy Hodges, also known as the Petey Pals, as we talk to you about topics involving raising well and happy children in today's challenging society. Please follow us on social media at the Petey Pals or find us online at www.thepetypals.com. Good day, and thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Well Child Podcast, brought to you by your PD pals and friendly pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and myself, Dr. Samira Hodges. As always, it would mean the world to us if you could like and share this podcast with your friends, and also if you would leave us a review for feedback. You can also follow us on social media at the PD pals or find us on the website that took two millennials far too long to create, www.thepdpals.com, hashtag be kind. We are so excited to share today's episode with you. 2020 was the year that nobody on the planet saw coming. In early 2019, from a source that has not yet been agreed upon by experts, the novel SARS-CoV-2 respiratory virus made the jump to human hosts and created the worst global pandemic the world has seen since possibly ever. Every human life on the planet has been altered. Every person has been affected and everything we once thought to be normal now has new meaning. Whether we like it or not, we are at the mercy of this situation as we all struggle to do the best we can with what we have. Today's topic is COVID-19 and today's guest, straight to you from an infectious disease standpoint and front lines is Dr. Janice Koshi. Anna, I know you have a history with Dr. Koshi, so I will leave the glowing introduction up to you. Thank you so much, Sammy, and thank you to all our listeners for joining. I am so, so, so excited today and thrilled and honored to introduce our guest speaker today. Dr. Koshi did her training at Texas A&M School of Medicine and then moved forward to do her internal medicine residency at Baylor Scott & White and then further specialized in infectious disease at the same institution. During her career, she has presented her research on various topics ranging from malaria to flu to infection control standards and various publications in renowned platforms, journals, and conferences over the years. She was the clinical assistant professor at Scott & White where she taught medical students, residents, and fellows, and then moved to Houston where she works as an infectious disease specialist on the front lines day in and day out covering many Houston area hospitals. Especially during this very difficult year that we've had and knowing her personally, um, I can say that she does this all so effortlessly and with so much grace as she is not only working so hard in her field every day, but is an extraordinary mother, wife, daughter, an amazing cook and baker, might I add, and also probably one of the strongest and smartest women I know. You are truly an inspiration to us all, and we are honored to have you on our podcast. So please welcome Dr. Janice Koshi. Yay. Hi. <laughs> Thank you well, for having me, and that was a glowing introduction that I don't think I deserve. <laughs> You do. You deserve all of it. But before we start, you know, throwing our questions at you, we just want to know, how are you? How are you doing? How I'm is doing it? well. Yes, thank you. So um, my uh, situation currently, I had a baby boy um, on September 18th, and he's getting close to being three months old. Um, and he has three other siblings, and they're six, four, two years old. <laughs> So oh we, have a very, we have a very uh, loud, busy house. Um, my husband is uh, also practicing medicine. He practices endocrinology here in the Houston area. Um, so just a lot going on right now. I'm still on maternity leave, but I'm going to be going back actually this weekend to work. So. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> 
The two-doctor household with four kids, how is this even, what, how, how are you doing this? I don't know. <laughs> we have so much help. Honestly, our parents have been so wonderful. We have a lot of help from our family, and that's been really great. So we have a, a contained bubble that has included our parents since the beginning of the year. So that's, that's been great. Really good. Yeah. I am I'm just so amazed at her because not only is this the two doctor household with, you know, four young children, but infectious disease in the middle of a pandemic that the world has ever seen. So <laughs> I don't know how you are doing this, but kudos, major. I kudos. don't either. I thought, you know, with us after two, we were like, man, limit reach. <laughs> <laughs> Multitasking capability has been overflowing now. So I'm seriously, I didn't know you had four kids. I'm floored. I mean, congratulations. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So in terms of just being on the front lines, when this whole thing started, I know that we've gone through our own roller coaster and you have been actually there in the hospitals treating patients on a day-to-day basis. How, How has this year evolved for you? Like what insight do you have about the whole the whole year so far? I think that this year has just been such a huge learning experience for all of us. Um, but, you know, when we first had the, the, the first wave or big surge of patients, that was like the end of spring into the summer, we were kind of learning how to manage the patients. The data was just coming out about treatments and things like that. So it was just doing the best you could with the information that we had. Um, so at that time, I feel like the support from different parts of the hospital, everything was just gearing up and, you know, just everyone was learning their roles in the beginning. And I think that it's evolved to a point where now it's much more structured in the hospital. So each specialty kind of knows their role in this more and the hospital is better well equipped to help all of us as we work too. So I think it's become more fine tuned the management. And, you know, we've learned a lot of things as a society about how to protect ourselves and what works and what doesn't work. And um, that's, uh, you know, hopefully stuff that we'll carry with us in the future. I have so many questions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I really want to know more about what you mean by the evolution of treatment, just because, um, you know, our point of view was so different from yours, you know, despite the fact that we're all doctors, you know, pediatrics was so Right. It's, it's such a different world. And then we're also outpatient. You're actually in the hospital. But I felt that when, you know, we were getting the data from Europe and from China and, you know, the Middle East, Iran, I felt we were getting that data and it had not quite hit us here yet, that it was like watching a tsunami come and there was nothing you could do about it. What were you thinking in like March? Do you remember? Like, where were you in um, headspace wise back then? You know, it was honestly hard to figure out how bad it was going to be here. We were seeing how bad it was in China and then Italy and then Iran, and we were seeing how it was hitting, but it was not clear if if it was going to be exactly the same or what how it would play out and what was affecting those dynamics. You know, was it because of the, you know, older population that was concentrated in that part of Italy? Was it because of you know, lack of weather thing or weather, different things. There's so much that we didn't know. And honestly, it's like the textbook was being written as we were all doing this. So yeah. I, I wasn't sure what to think. I think we were in the beginning of the year, we were still dealing with the flu season. We were still thinking, oh man, is this, what's going to happen? Is this going to be like the flu? Is going to be worse than the flu? It was hard to really understand that. And even now, I think we're still trying to understand the dynamics. We know how it affects older people. We know it hits them hard. But we're seeing that younger people are not totally, you know, unscathed, that they have uh, effects from this too. And so all of that is, you know, just, I think, rolling out as, as we're going through it. And so how have you seen the evolution of, of therapy? Because I also remember that we were really uh, – I guess aggressive is the best word I can come up with, with ventilator use at the beginning, thinking that's the best tool we had, but things have changed, haven't they? Yes, I would say ventilator management, airway management, and also steroids. So that was a huge thing. Um, In the very beginning, especially with infectious diseases, 
in the hospitals, we would have ongoing discussions. Should we be using steroids? Should we not? Is this going to make things better? Is it going to make it worse? And there were just ongoing discussions from the ICU, the pulmonologists with infectious diseases. We're just trying to figure out the best approach in managing these patients. So that's one thing that really changed when we had, you know, really good data that showed a decrease in mortality or deaths in patients with severe disease who received dexamethasone. That was really, I think, a a big thing for inpatient management. And then ventilators, you're right, in the beginning, a lot of people were getting intubated early. We were getting videos from Italy, from the intensivists, ICU doctors there, from places in Iran, from doctors in China, trying to figure out the best way to manage this. And those discussions were going on like real time in the hospital, like how how do we do this? Should they get intubated? Should we try to do non-invasive? But early on, definitely patients, I think, were getting intubated earlier and more frequently. And now I think the trend is more to use less invasive um, measures, so non-invasive oxygen, low flow, high flow, you know, humidified air, and things like that before going to intubation. Because sometimes when patients are intubated, it's a long, long road. So... How, um, I had a question about the mortality that you mentioned. Over the year, have you seen a change in the mortality um, in terms of how patients are responding to the treatments? Um, I know the medical community has become better educated and better equipped um, you know, to, to manage it, but how has the mortality changed in your opinion? I think, I mean, definitely this is my opinion because hard numbers are have not been ironed out for the mortality rate and case fatality rate. It varies a lot by region and based on different things um, specific to patient populations like their comorbidities and all. But I, I think that the, and I've had a discussion with one of my friends who's a hospitalist too, we've noticed that I think the management has become more fine-tuned and we see less patients dying that doesn't mean we don't see patients dying. It's just we see less numbers dying. So I think that the airway management, the oxygenation management, um, the use of steroids, um, probably those two things are a big thing. And then, um, you know, I think just the other measures that have been implemented in society, wearing masks maybe reduces the burden of how much people are exposed to. All that makes a difference, too. But yeah, yeah, I would say that, you know, from just what I've seen, I think that there are less deaths in the hospital. Yeah, so there's a lot of that, right, that that uh, kind of opinion came out about, it wasn't an opinion, but there was some science behind it as well, that if, you know, both individuals are wearing masks, even if one has COVID, the amount of mm-hmm. virus you're inoculated with will be attenuated so much less, right. meaning that you potentially are not going to have a severe of a yeah. course of illness, right? Similar to how vaccines work, actually. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, been really great and fascinating. So to make it a little personal, and and then I'll um, allow Anna, <laughs> sorry, to interrupt you, but uh, were you scared? <laughs> you know, at the beginning when this was coming, and we didn't know what was happening and which way it was up and down, and PPE supplies and all that. Absolutely. This year, I I feel like has been so eye-opening. So I found out I was pregnant in January, and that was a huge thing, you know. Um, So in the beginning, before March, I think me and my partners, we were just trying to feel it out and be very cautious, but at the same time, just figure out what's going on. I remember the first patient at one of my hospitals that presented with covid we didn't know, you know, I had a mask on and I had PPE on, he was coughing a storm. I got such a detailed story from him. And I just remember when I was talking to him, I was astounded at how many places he had been and how many people he'd been around. And that was, that was overwhelming. I was like, how are we going to backtrack that? Like, you know, (laughs) Um, so that was huge. And then he, he ended up having a really rough course. He was fairly young. He survived, but he had a really rough course. And then I remember the patients that died um, and how long they were on ventilators and how hard it was. We had one couple that was intubated across from each other in the ICU, and one lived and one died. Um, and like you know, m- so many stories like that where one person died and then their their spouse came in later. Um, you know, they got they passed out on the way to their spouse's funeral, like things like this. So just horrible, sad stories. You know, it was really hard. So that, as you keep seeing these cases one by one, it did you know, make me a little nervous. I, 
I remember early on, I was wearing regular surgical masks. And then, you know, we were more and more concerned about should we be wearing more? Should we be wearing N95? So many of the patients were on, you know, high flow oxygen or on different therapies where things were being aerosolized. So we, we were, we were very cautious. I was pregnant, so I was wearing N95, a surgical mask, ultimately a face shield, um, and a PPE. When I was towards the end of my pregnancy, I was wearing all three, and I would wear it the whole time I was in the hospital. So I was, I was a little bit um, uh, not afraid. I was just very aware of what was going on, and that also because we had three little kids at home. My in-laws lived with us at the time. They're in their late sixties. My mom was living with us. She's in her late sixties. So that was my bigger concern that I could possibly bring something home to my family. I definitely was saving my N95s. I'll be honest. I have a bag yeah. of them in my car and I still uh, save them because I just didn't know if we would have enough. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag same <Z's. laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And we all, I think all of us collectively as a medical community went through this uh, initially where there was so much unknown about whether we were going to have PPE and we were right. going to have enough to go around. And so you being there, you know, seeing these patients at their sickest, I can only imagine how difficult it was because for us in the clinic too, it was, it was really, really difficult to know what we, what we were going to be facing today, you know, or who we were going to see. Now with um, some of the PPE that has, you know, been deployed to all the hospitals and, and we have the supplies, do you feel better protected? Do you feel a little bit, um, uh, has, has that, I know it's still difficult coming home to a, a whole family, you know? Um, I think it's definitely gotten better. We had a, one of the hospitals I work at, they have like a center or like a station, a PPE station. So we would come in in the morning, get our PPE, and kind of that really just gives you a sense of security when you have you feel like you have what you need then i mean i was pregnant but i was going in i was going in the rooms cuz i felt like i had adequate ppe i had what i had needed on whereas you know if you don't it's kind of terrifying when you're going into the rooms or sometimes that will def- make patient pe- make doctors or whoever's taking care not want to go in and that can affect patient care too if you don't feel safe enough to go into the room. So the patient's not being evaluated and, you know, people aren't going in because of lack of PPE. So having that and feeling like you have that available to you, you have what you need really allows you to do your job. This is the first time in all of our careers that we had uh, this type of situation where we felt strange about touching our patients because we're such a tactile profession and such a large part of what we do is the physical exam. And uh, I did want to also circle back and ask Anna what her thoughts were about the same question she asked you about how she feels now a few months down the line. Cause I know, like I said, it's so different with us with peds. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I feel like initially there was um, a lot of that hesitation where, um, you know, the the guidelines were changing uh, moment by moment, you know, um, there was so much information being thrown at us. There was a lot of just um, unknowns, you know, and I think that those unknowns were weighing heavily. But now I feel like um, in a way, we've gotten a little bit, um, I don't want to say numb, but we've gotten used to uh, taking all these precautions, you know, and I feel like with the PPE, it is totally, um, I think, night and day for me in terms of, of my comfort level um, uh, and feeling protected. But of course, um, it is it, going into the holidays with the, the seasons changing and, um, you know, everything changing by the minute, uh, it is still I think, um, difficult day to day. And it was, it was, was scary when we were hearing about other countries, healthcare workers were dropping like flies, mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. but I would say one thing that's been maybe slightly different for us from where you stand, you know, when you're talking about these stories of a spouse and then their spouse comes in later, I never really, I never put that together because from where we sit, it's usually either we're in clinic or we're on telemedicine and we're trying to determine if a child has COVID and honestly, nine times out of 10, their parents had it first. We, I think there's a really long period of time where we thought maybe the children were the super spreaders and they were, but it seems to be more that 
adults are giving it to children. Now that's just anecdotal. If there's some data out there that negates what I just said, I will, I will bend over. But um, the, what we feel most of the time is here we are and we have this sick child and we're trying to determine, is it a cold? Is it COVID? Is it, what is it? And we're looking at the parent the whole time thinking, you look awful. You know, <laughs> the child always looks fine, you know, right. and, you know, maybe a little fever, but running around the room overall fine. And the parents are the ones that are hacking up a lung. And I can't tell you how many times, despite the fact that the parents are not my patient, I'm like, you know what? Forget about Billy. You look terrible. <laughs> do you need to go to the hospital? Um, have you, like, can you breathe? You know, where, what are you, where are you at here? So. Wow. And that's like in small confined rooms too. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, yeah. And I think a, a lot of, I think in the pediatric world has been a lot of this anticipatory guidance, you know, uh, because we luckily, luckily for all of us, kids aren't getting as sick as the adults are, you know, they are um, luckily getting mild illnesses, which we're so grateful for. But I think that becomes difficult to identify, you know, because so many times I hear, oh, we think it's just allergies, we think it's, you know, the weather, and it's just so hard to provide that guidance about, well, it could be, or it could not be, you know, and um, what have you noticed as far as the age ranges in, in, in your, um, uh, in the patient population that you see? Have you seen um, any differences um, initially starting in, in March and from now as far as who is affected the most or severely? Well, so for the last three months, I've been home, but <laughs> I've been following um, kind of as much as I can from the emails that we get. I would say in the beginning, you know, we had a lot of patients that were very sick in the ICU that were in like 50s, late 50s, mid 50s and above. Um, in the ICU. But we also had a few that were like in their 20s or 30s that were severely ill. Um, it was such a wide range, you know, like honestly, you had a very wide range of people who got critically ill. Um, I mean, I would say by far the majority of people that were, that were, that died were either had some kind of chronic lung disease or comorbidity or were in advanced in their age. But I, I still feel like we had a pretty um, widespread. And more recently, before I went on maternity leave, the cases had come down at that point, like around September. It had definitely started to die down. It was improving. But um, we would usually see like um, a good number of younger people come in, and then that would be followed by older people. Um, one of the hospitals I work at, there's a lot of patients that live in multi-generational households. So I remember like we would have a son come in in their twenties. Um, and then the next week their father would come in or something like that, you know, something uh, that way. And you would just see that kind of over and over again. So it's I, I know for us, we had the similar uh, experience where I personally didn't see a single case of COVID between August and end of October. But then as of the end of October, things kind of started to right. you know, peak back again. So you kind of touched on it. And I just wanted to make sure that our audience was aware of, you know, the risk factors uh, yeah. that you've noticed. Uh, we talk about, you know, obesity, age, what else have you come in contact with? So, I mean, definitely those things, the risk factors that are, you know, there for severe disease or advanced or older age, uh, the median age right now for patients actually being hospitalized is 49 to 56. So it's not even that um, advanced of an age group that's being hospitalized. And then those comorbidities, having um, a BMI greater than uh, or equal to 35, chronic heart or lung disease, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, kidney disease, cancer, those kind of things are um, are risk factors. Men, we would see definitely more men in the hospital than women. Um, and then there's certain, um, like I guess, uh, groups of populations of people, um, more patients in the black community or Hispanic community that we would see um, hospitalized with uh, COVID-19 as well, at least what? at the hospital that I worked at. What is it with the 49 to 56? What? I would have expected you to say 80 and above. No, actually, uh, it, yeah, we have, I don't know if it's the hospitals that I worked at, because I work at two um, in the Houston area, but we did have a very 
a significant number in that age group that were in the hospitals. I think I've been hearing that lately as well, is just in the recently that even 40 to 60, which, you know, is not considered elderly, that's just middle, you know, middle age, um, seeing, you know, severely, severely affected. So it's just, it's just shocking. Um, I have a question for both of you, um, being, being moms. One of the most I think asked questions that I get in the clinics is about schools and making this decision about um, sending their kids back to school and and it being an ever-changing situation. So I'm just curious from a personal standpoint, how did you both approach that and what do you what do you tell your patients? Okay. So for us, we had a well he, a kindergartner and um, two kids in daycare. At the time, after spring break, we kind of pulled everybody out and they were virtual and then continued that until summer. And then um, for this school year, we decided to stick with virtual. But that's largely because we have a nanny who has been able to help us. So she does the school for my first grader and for my preschooler. And she sits with them. And it's actually, for them, it's been really great. We have four kids, so they're not lonely. They, they play together. <laughs> they actually are having a really good time. I've asked my son multiple times, do you want to go back? And he, he's kind of the kind that's like he finishes his work and then wants to enjoy the rest of the day. So he's like almost learning time management through this. Um, and my daughter is just happy as long as she's with her brother. So they've enjoyed it. But I know that a lot of people are not able to do this with because um, they don't have the help. Um, if it was just me, I don't think it would be the same situation. Sammy, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, yeah, you asked that good question, right? So um, at the end of the day, I think the take-home message for parents is it it is a personal decision. Uh, COVID has become one of those situations where comfort level dictates a lot of what we're okay doing and what we want to do and not do. So uh, I think a lot of the, a lot of people at the beginning did want guidance from their doctor, but it was all new to us too. We didn't know what the risk was of sending children to school. Um, We didn't have the data. We didn't know how much it spread between each other. We didn't know if the metrics and the measures that they were going to take were going to be sufficient in order to keep the infection at bay. So for us, our personal experience was, you know, similar to many parents after spring break, we didn't go back and there was remote learning. I have a, a then a six and a nine-year-old, now a seven and a 10-year-old, but uh, they, uh, at first with the remote learning, they did quite well. And then there was a little burnout that happened around the early May period. And, you know, the burnout also was partly on my end where I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's okay. If you don't get it done, I'm fine with that. This year's just a write-off. So uh, there was that little bit. And then we, we you know, we had, a, we had a nice summer in the sense that we were super lucky in Texas. We had really nice weather and we were always able to go outside. And I know a lot of people in the world didn't have that luxury. So we were really lucky. We still got to bike ride. We still got to go for walks. We did, you know, nature hunts, you name it. There was a lot of that. And then when the time was coming back for us to decide whether or not to send the kids in school, it was a, it was a tough decision. So what we ended up actually doing was we, we wanted to not be in the first group. We wanted to see how things went first. We figured within a month, we're going to know if this is spreading through the schools really rapidly or not. So we opted for the in-home learning uh, for the first month. And then, uh, you know, it became clear there was a couple isolated cases in the school, but they wouldn't spread to the rest of the children. So it became clear to us pretty rapidly that the masks were helping and their efforts, uh, the extra sanitation that they were doing and the hand washing and everything helped a lot. And now we we might take it a step further than the average person too. All of us, my husband, myself, my children, we disrobe in the garage. So we take our clothes off in the garage, we throw it in the laundry, and we all hop in the shower after we've been to school slash work. Uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's good overkill or what, but that's what we've been doing for now. It just makes me feel better because I know for a fact that you know bringing something home is like a legitimate risk. So uh, I don't want any of us to get it if we can help that. We do the same thing, yeah. You okay? So, um, I mean, I even make the kids do it, and yeah. they're okay with that. 
But, you know, we mask our, we wash their masks every day. They had so much education about uh, infection control and spreading and germs that I was actually afraid for a period of time I was creating germaphobes. So I, I kind of scaled back a little bit too, because there was a little bit too much hand washing going on at some point. It was tough for all parents. You know, at the beginning of this, we were all kind of wiping down our groceries and it can, I mean, you can just imagine for the children how confusing this whole thing was. So, um, you know, that was kind of our journey into it. So since that first month, my two have been back in school. And I actually have to say my older one, my 10-year-old, is a little more of a social butterfly than my seven-year-old. So about two weeks into remote learning, when she knew all of her friends were not remote learning, (laughs) there was a lot of peer pressure, (laughs) mommy pressure going on. And, you know, not uh, not in a particularly bad way. She just kept saying that, you know, you know, it's okay if you don't trust other people, but you can trust us. You know, and when this like when they th- when they do things like that, that you're like, I don't have an answer for you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that was our. Uh, but we also hired help. Just um, you know, I did want to mention that I didn't want people to think that this was completely doable by ourselves. So we were also really lucky. We also hired help, and we had, we got a great, great, great nanny. I don't know how long we'll be able to keep her. I think she's like a beautiful butterfly that's going to fly away from us at some point, and we'll go back to the status quo. But um, we did, we had, we, we had to, especially with the beginning when we were remote learning, there's no way my husband and I could be home for that. Yeah. And I think that's the main reason I wanted to ask, because I see families go through this, this difficult, you know, decision. And, uh, I kind of wanted to just ask to illustrate that this is tough decision for everybody, you know, physicians, um, uh, everyone included, because there's no easy the or right answer. You really have to figure out what your circumstances are and what you can do and do the best, you know, within that comfort level. And there's so many variables, you know, how schools are doing, your your home situation, um, you you know, if you have uh, care for the children, it's it's so hard. So thank you guys for answering that. If they have elderly people at home, so a lot of people have kept kept their kids home because grandma or somebody else that is, you know, immunocompromised lives with them, or sometimes if the children have a medical condition. But I will say this, I I really want this to be the take-home message of your question for parents. At the end of the day, everyone did what they thought was best for them. And, uh, you know, there was no right or wrong answer. You just did what you felt was best for your family. and. the best is not to be judgmental about it because I do see, I just, you see so much mom shaming, you know, and again, once again, here we are at an odds, people who stayed home feel judgy of those that sent their kids to school. And then those that have sent their kids to school have, you know, a, a judgment element, vice versa. And it just shouldn't be like that. Uh, everyone did, like you said, the best they could with their situation. They might've not been able to keep their kids. Some of them are able to keep their kids at home and, but they also have their set of challenges Home learning, remote learning is is tough. It, it's really I don't think it can replicate what happens in the classroom. And you know, some kids thrive there, and some really struggle with home learning. So there should be, to me, no judgment, and everyone should just do the best they can. But the reassurance that I can provide as a pediatrician, at least, is from my standpoint, one city, one practice. I haven't really seen giant school outbreaks uh, where everyone is taking adequate precautions with that caveat. I haven't seen kids spread it to each other, especially the younger school age kids. I'm not really talking about the teens or high school, but the younger school age kids, I still haven't seen it spread like wildfire in a classroom. So that's the, that's the statistic, or I guess that's the um, message that I give to my families a lot. I don't know what you think, Anna. Yeah, I think I, I, I usually just have them focus more on, you know, what things to recognize and when to quarantine. I think, I feel like that's the best you can do. Just make sure that they're educated because how often do we notice, well, you know, we, we maybe didn't get it from school, but, you know, after school gatherings or family events, I mean, there's so many variables that come into play. I've also seen this kind of, um, I guess this, a little bit of this attitude when, um, uh, when kids are back out in school and they're back out in the world, you do let your guard down a little bit, you know? And so um, I have noticed that in families, uh, more people um, uh, tend to then, 
uh, with letting their guard down, have more gatherings. And I think that's the, the biggest thing I tell them is that, you know, do what you can do in the circumstances that you have, but just beware that we are in a pandemic and, um, you know, we just have to look out for um, uh, particular symptoms and, and talk to your doctor. I mean, I think that's the best that they can do because everyone's situation is so different. Um, and so I just try to educate as much as I can and say, you know, if you see this, um, you know, talk to your doctor or stay home and switch to virtual learning if you have symptoms, you know, things like that. It's just, it's just hard all around. And so much of it ha- has to do with a social responsibility too, right? Yes. So how many kids have we seen uh, where they might have allergies and it's like, you know, we're, we're telling them it's, right. you're probably right. It's probably allergies, but do you really want to send your child back to school without at least giving the other parents the courtesy of having looked into the fact that it's not COVID? Exactly. Yeah. So Janice, what, what would you, if there was like a message, uh, you know, for, for our audience, what would you recommend going into the holiday season? Um, uh, your, your kind of biggest take homes of, of how you think we should approach it, you know, um, um, moving forward. And how can people protect themselves? Right. Yeah. I think that this is like really a season to be creative. Um, we had a, um, baby shower for one of my cousins recently. I mean, she lived in another state. So, but it was also all of us were here and she was there. We did a zoom virtual baby shower and it was actually really sweet. You know, we still did games. She actually decorated her living room. So there was a backdrop for us. So like she did that, but we did like, we all uh, made a recipe together, a quick recipe. We made it and then we toasted with the recipe. We had it together and it was really nice. You know, we had games and I thought it was really good. My um, great friends, including Anandita, they surprised me with a baby shower on my driveway. They just showed up. Of course she did. Yeah. I mean, I was like, so it was, it was really sweet. They showed up. They brought a table. <laughs> they brought a table and chairs, and we sat on the driveway, socially distanced, and had individually wrapped tacos. It was like perfect. It was everything per guidelines and recommendations. But we had a great time. We sat and had a baby shower out on the driveway. Nineties mu- music playlist in one of the cars. It was yes, <laughs> we did. And then like we've done that. We I think that you just have to be kind of creative, and especially with the winter. You know, with the weather being cold, just come up with different options. But it doesn't mean that you can't spend time with your family or loved ones. It's just maybe in a different way. Um, and so just being accommodating, knowing that this will end, there is an end in sight. It's not going to be like this forever. So I would say, try to be creative. Think of things with your family that you can do, uh, to reach out to your family, to reach out to the people that you love without putting anybody at risk. So things that work that we know work are washing your hands, you know, keep washing 20 seconds. My um, two-year-old is learning how to count by washing his hands. <laughs> so it's like counting 20 while he washes his hands. And then if you don't, if your hands are soiled, do you soap and water? If they're not, use an alcohol-based, uh, you know, sanitizer for, uh, for that. Um, wear masks. If you're wearing a, um, a cloth mask, something that has like two layers of protection, um, that would be good. Wear mask when you go out to eat with people. Try to keep your mask on. If you're going to eat, try to eat outside and socially distance, things like that. Just minimize the risk. Um, avoid touching your face. Avoid large crowded gatherings. If you're going to be indoors, open windows. You know, improve the ventilation in your area. So if you have like, if you're in like a house with other people, opening the windows is always going to help the situation for spread. So I think that's one of the things we do when her nanny comes over. She wears a mask. We open the windows where her and the kids are sitting. They wear masks together, you know, so that kind of helps with um, improving ventilation. And then, um, uh, you know, uh, I think disinfecting frequently touched surfaces is something else to consider doing. So Janice, I'm curious, what, uh, from your expertise standpoint, what made this be the beast that it is? You know, you are so, I mean, as an ID doctor, you know everything there is to know about bugs, you know, viruses, bacteria. What made this so radical? You know, I think that uh, when 
when you look at the coronaviruses, they have this ability to jump from animal vector from animals to humans. So you have this potential to go from one species to another. And they, um, it's novel. It's something that none of our immune systems have ever encountered before, which is what made it so, um, so just widespread and just made it so, uh, huge for, for, for the world. But I think that, uh, that was one of the things that was, uh, was huge about this virus specifically about COVID-19. Um, just that nobody had ever encountered it before. Yeah. Which brings us to the question. Now we're getting, like you said, there's an end in sight. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. So there are some vaccines coming out and I know, there's a lot of vaccine hesitant people out there and maybe people that weren't even hesitant about vaccines before this uh, are now finding this particular thing a little daunting. So what do you think to vaccinate or not to vaccinate? I think to vaccinate. Um, One of the things I would say, you know, a lot of people have um, concern because of how quickly these vaccines were developed and all of that is very reasonable. But I think some things to keep in mind, the platforms that these vaccines were developed on were not developed this year. They have been developed years ago. Um, it was just, you know, the opportunity was presented to mass produce them. So for example, for the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccines, they use mRNA platforms. Um, and these are basically new platforms for viruses, but they're able to be produced in large amounts quickly. So that's the reason um, that they're being used, this novel platform, this new platform. And part of the reason it was done so quickly is because the mRNA technology was already there. You know, you just needed the the reason to mass produce it, which is COVID-19. And the, the funding, right? The funding, right, through the, yeah, that's it. That's a massive funding project. So... That's one thing I would say, you know, that to be reassured about the platforms were studied and available before they were actually studied on other viruses, Ebola, Zika, these, the same platform was studied on other viruses. That's one thing. Second thing is, I don't know of any vaccine. I don't know of any vaccine that has more scrutiny around it than, than these. So I think that's, that's a true. Good you know, um, just the amount of scrutiny that's going to be going around it. Other things that are pluses are that this mRNA vaccine, this type of platform is not using any infectious um, vector to, or it's not, it doesn't have any infectious particles in it. So that's something um, people worry about. Well, if I get the vaccine, will I get COVID? It's not possible because it's just basically instructions to make one protein for your body. It's the whole virus is not even presented to your body at all. So um, I, I do want to get vaccinated. I encourage those in the community to get vaccinated because that would be the way to bring this to an end. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, we, the, the nice thing that we have, uh, like Janice mentioned, we have a lot of scrutiny and um, hopefully transparency because this is the talk of the town, you know, and um, there are a lot of medical professionals, I think, working on it. And of course, there's um, a lot of conspiracy theorists and there's, you know, a lot of that um, uh, discussion that goes around. But I think we've seen the devastation, you know, we've seen um, the effects. And, and I agree, I think that the vaccine has gone through, um, you know, a lot of scrutiny. And so I totally agree. I totally do. The way I think of it, um, and I think of everything as being risk-based. So I think a lot of people who are hesitant about vaccines feel that it is a risky thing to do. And, and they don't potentially realize that scientists don't disagree with them. There is nothing in the world that you could do that is zero, that has zero risk with it. If you get in your car right now on a Texas road in Houston, you have a one in 77 chance of getting into a car accident, but you take that risk every day. So everything that we do is risk-benefit-based. Is the risk less than the benefits you will gain from it? And I did a lot of research on this new, uh, specifically the Pfizer vaccine, because I think that's the one that we're going to be getting at our uh, place of employment. I did a lot of research, and I just couldn't, my, my question, you know, what I was asking myself is, is there 
any reason not to get this? Like, where is this reason? And I just couldn't find one. You know, there were things were accelerated in terms of funding and in terms of going through the red tape because we had an urgency on our, on our hands, but nothing was compromised in terms of safety. And, and vaccinations are part of the reason why we are where we are today as a, as a human society. We've evolved to get to this point because we have been able to, uh, you know, out trick viruses and bacteria. And, and that's why we are where we are. Herd immunity is such an important concept. Uh, we're having so many, you know, discussions on a day-to-day basis about herd immunity. And, and as soon as it wanes, suddenly you're at risk of having an outbreak of something like measles. And these risks are all there. And not to be a fear monger, just to, just to put the reality of the situation out there. So for myself, when I was looking at whether or not I was going to vaccinate with the COVID vaccine, I thought, well, my odds of, uh, you know, getting COVID, I'm going to get COVID. If yeah, at some point you're going to get COVID, it's it's there, it's out there, and it is very prevalent. So my risk of having a poor outcome if I get coronavirus is about one in a hundred, uh, given my risk factors, my age, you know, all that stuff. Uh, plus, I we're usually you know exposed to it more than the average person because of our job. But my risk of having something happen if I get the vaccine is like one in 40,000. So I'm going to take the odds of, of taking the vaccine. I'm not saying it's 100% riskless. No, but chances are if you do have something uh, that happens, uh, if you get a vaccine, you would have had the same thing happen if you got the virus, right? One of the things that we most frequently speak about is something called Guillain-Barre. Um, you can have that same risk, if not potentially more, if you get the actual virus itself. So that's the way I look at life. Um, it's all based on risk, and am I willing to risk it or not? I don't know what you guys think about that. No, I agree. Yeah, no, totally. I think those are all valid points. I do have one other question for Janice. Um, you know, do you feel moving forward this is going to be a similar? A lot of patients ask me about: Is this going to be um, a seasonal vaccine? Is it going to be similar to the flu? And uh, I get I've been getting a lot of questions lately about: um, Will getting the flu vaccine in any way, um, uh, you know, change um, our outcomes if we get the COVID vaccine? Um, so these are just some of the questions I've been hearing. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts. Um, So as far as having to get like an annual vaccine, um, it's definitely a possibility. We've seen that in patients who actually develop COVID-19, their immune response can wane after four months or so. So it's definitely a possibility that we may need boosters in the future. Um, But some things to think about with the vaccine. With the flu shot, one of the things that we know is that even, you know, the flu shot, the goal is to prevent people from getting the flu. But we also know that patients who receive the flu shot, if they get the flu, their illness is much milder, which is one of the biggest things that we want. We want to avoid people having severe COVID-19 because that is, you know, that's pretty bad when you're in the hospital, when you're on a ventilator, when you're requiring oxygen, it's not um, an easy road. So preventing severe illness is one of the goals, and then preventing infection is also one of the goals. Um, as far as uh, getting annual shots, it's a possibility, but we're not going to know that. Uh, we're not going to know that yet. And then, as far as in, you know, interactions or problems when you receive the flu vaccine and how that will affect COVID nineteen. I think the biggest thing is you want to get the flu vaccine because you don't want to have both. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to have the flu and COVID nineteen. So we don't have any evidence that getting the flu shot will affect your outcomes uh, uh, as far as COVID-19 or whether you get COVID-19 or not. It's just that during this time of year, you want to avoid um, definitely getting one or the other, both. You want to avoid getting both if possible. And one little plug about masks working, anecdotally also, anyone who has their kids in school who's wearing masks probably has noticed as a parent that their kids aren't getting sick as much this year. Yes. So they do work. Yes. And parents who have kids, that's also <laughs> like when you, the masks are huge. <laughs> yes. Point <laughs> again about the, um, about the flu vaccine and potentially the COVID vaccine. I think this is the main point I try to tell families, you know, because they don't necessarily see all the complications of the flu that we do as yeah. uh, medical 
professionals, you know. Um, and so reducing pneumonias, hospitalizations, and deaths, you know, the vaccine, uh, I think a lot of uh, years has been up to 80% in reducing those. So you could still get potentially get the flu if you've had the vaccine, but really preventing those complications. I think that's what I really try to explain because a lot of people feel, well, uh, I might get sick if I get the vaccine or I got it last year and I still got the flu, you know, um, but thank you for um, emphasizing that point about the complications. Cause I think that's so, so important. Yeah. And it makes me want to say one more thing too, cause you're right. We, we look at things through such a different lens as physicians. We can't help it. Um, believe me, we take it home too, <laughs> but it took me one patient uh, who got nasopharyngeal cancer at the age of 14 to say, I'm going to be having serious talk with every single one of my patients about the HPV vaccine. It took me one patient about four or five years ago, 12-year-old, previously healthy, zero risk factors, who died from flu B. You know, I don't want to have that happen on my watch to my patients who I'm watching grow up and have a hopeful life ahead of them. So we do, we see things through a totally different lens. And Janice, I can't even imagine where you're sitting. Right, yeah. No, I, I feel like I could talk to you all day, <laughs> but we are getting probably to the end of our session. Yeah. Yes. And I think for all the listeners, we are going to talk more specifically about some of the complications um, that happen in children specifically that have had uh, the coronavirus. And in our next episode, we're going to have a pediatric specialist uh, for our part two <laughs> version of this. Uh, but we are so grateful that Janice um, came on and, and told us, you know, answered all of our questions and was so, so informative. So really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much, Janice. Thank y'all for having me. I really appreciate it. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.